I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. guys welcome back this is rachel and this is with all your mind and we're back again to guess what talk about the bible more because that's how we do right so here we are we're in the middle of talking about canon what is the bible how is it decided to be that way who made it that way and what are the criteria that make it the canon so canon again is Whatever collection of books is regarded as divine revelation from God. And when we were talking about the Old Testament, we were talking about a collection of scrolls because books were not really a thing yet. And by book, I mean the format that we talk about book where you turn a page that's bound within leather or more paper. So before about, I think it was 580, uh, the Codex... That's a first version of a book. Uh, codex, codices. <laughs> yeah, fun word. Codices. It's like uh, octopus, octopi, <laughs> Xerox, Xeries. <laughs> yeah. So codex was what a book was called when it was first invented in Europe in the 500s AD. So when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're just talking about scrolls so that each book of the Bible was an individual scroll. Now, there were a couple of them that were combined into one scroll, such as Ezra and Nehemiah were in one scroll, but most books of the Bible were one scroll apiece. So that's how the Bible looked in Old Testament times, and it's pretty clear what the Old Testament is comprised of and how we decided the Old Testament canon. It was directly taken from what the Jews considered to be their canon, for their scriptures, for their holy writings. And by the way, scripture is a word from Latin meaning writings. So when I say scripture, holy writings, I'm saying the same thing repeatedly, just different words that mean that. So now we're going to talk about the New Testament and how was the New Testament canon decided. And this is very different from the Old Testament because Jews do not consider the New Testament to be Bible because it's all about Jesus and the new covenant under Jesus. Jesus is not recognized as the Jewish Messiah by Jews, and therefore they do not recognize the New Testament as being holy scripture or a part of any holy writings. Okay, so we had to have whole different criteria about how to decide the New Testament canon because we're not basing it on whatever somebody else believed at the time. Also, when the Jews were deciding the canon of the Old Testament, they had their own structure, their own religious structure and hierarchy that they were working in, right? The Jewish religion was an organized religion with a structure to it, a different hierarchy. There were priests, there were Levites. Now for the Christians who had decided that Jesus was the Messiah, they had accepted this and they were, it was kind of considered a sect of Judaism when Christianity was first coming out of Judaism. Jews of the time did not consider themselves to not be Jews anymore. They saw themselves as knowing more and following a Messiah that the other Jews were not following. 
So early Christians who were Jews did not see themselves as separate and distinct from the Jewish religious system. They believed that they had found their Messiah, but they were still following the Old Testament. They were still reading the Old Testament books. They were still incredibly important. But now they were adding on to the scripture. And that's a whole different topic, by the way. There is Old Testament writings that showed that they expected more writing to happen, more holy books, more divine revelation from God. And they were surprised it wasn't happening. Well, it happened with Jesus. It happened with the New Testament books. So New Testament Christians who were writing these books had to do so without that hierarchy, without that structure of organized kind of government within a religion within Judaism because the Jews did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So there became a new hierarchy of kind of religious leadership in Jerusalem. So we know that James and John were a part of this hierarchy. Paul went to talk to them. Peter was a part of it. So we know that there was generally a structure, but we don't have any information from the Bible or elsewhere about this structure of leadership deciding on canon. We don't hear about it in Acts in the New Testament, and we don't hear about it from the early church history. It was a very tumultuous time in early church history when some of these books were being written, the early or mid um, first century AD was when Rome was destroying Jerusalem. So a lot was going on at the time and accurate records were not necessarily kept by the Jews or by the Romans about a city that they were destroying, right? Does that make sense? It's just kind of like in war, you hear about the chaos of war, the fog of war. The same thing tends to happen with records because records can get destroyed with people and buildings. And oftentimes these kinds of things have to be smuggled around or traveled out of the area to be safe. And if we're talking about papyrus, which was a common writing medium of the time, it's a very fragile writing medium. Uh, it's kind of halfway between wheat and paper so that it can disintegrate over time. And that's often what happened, especially in humid climates. In very dry climates like Egypt, papyrus lasted for a long time. But in more humid climates, it did not last long at all. So a lot of records were lost simply because the writing medium that we had it on just wasn't suited for long-term storage. Okay, but we'll talk about papyrus a little bit later. First, we're going to talk about what kind of books are in the New Testament. When we talked about the Old Testament, we mentioned the three main chunks that the Old Testament is in. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and it gives the structure and the history of the formation of Judaism. And then the prophets are prophetic books, which also give us history and some poetry. And then the writings are whatever don't fit into those other two categories. So that includes Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those kinds of books. In the New Testament, we have a similar grouping of books. We have the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. All of those can be considered history. They're giving the history 
of the formation of this new covenant under Jesus. So we have the Gospels and Acts, which are our history. And then we have the epistles, which are largely written by Paul. And then we have apocalyptic literature. Do you remember me talking about apocalyptic literature? It's that word that I can't say fast. For example, I'll try and say it fast right now. Apocalyptic. Oh, I did it. That's the first time. Apocalyptic. Oh, see, there I did it again. Apocalyptic literature was a fairly common genre of literature in ancient Near East where it's literature talking about divinely or God-caused huge events, disasters, famines, wars, all these bad stuff that happens at the end of time. That's apocalyptic literature. I think we have a similar genre in disaster movies, but I don't think we have as much of a genre of end of times disaster movies. We usually have like disaster movies and then getting through to the other side. Another thing that should be noted is that we have a lot of names attached to New Testament books. We have the Gospels, which all have the name of a man, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have books that we know are written by Paul. And then we have books like 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st and 2nd Peter, James, Jude, all these different names. Now, we're pretty sure that Paul wrote all of the books that are attributed to Paul. Hebrews is a bit of a mystery. There's different theories. Uh, one of them is that Paul wrote it because archaeologists found a collection of epistles written by Paul, and whoever collected those writings said that these are Paul's letters, and Hebrews was included in them. So that started the theory that Hebrews was written by Paul. But Hebrews has a different writing style and uses different vocabulary than all the rest of Paul's epistles. So according to that, people think maybe it was somebody different, like Apollos, who we hear about in Acts. So there's just all different theories. But something you should know about those New Testament books, we have good tradition and good reason to believe that they're written by those guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John but we are not 100% about who wrote them, and they might have had, like a lot of other biblical writers, help to write them, such as somebody else to do the actual writing, or they might have asked somebody to edit it and kind of look over it, fix their punctuation errors and stuff like that. So we are fairly sure we know who wrote the New Testament books, but there's always room for theories especially books like Hebrews, and even for Revelation. There might have been two different Johns in the first century AD, and we got those two Johns put together into one guy and thought that it was John the disciple that wrote Revelation when it was a different John. That's a possibility. Now, one reason why people like to get into these theories is that there was a very common tradition to use pseudonyms when you're writing literature in the ancient Near East. That's what, remember, we called pseudepigraphal literature, or pseudepigrapha, or pseudonyms. It's all connected to the same root. That is when you're writing under somebody else's name. At that time, it was considered an honor to put somebody else's name on your writing. It wasn't considered plagiarism. 
it wasn't considered copyright infringement or anything bad. It was actually considered an honor that you were writing with somebody else's legacy in mind, that you were trying to write like them or that you admired their work. So that was a very common tradition in the ancient Near East. So it's very common to have a book that says it was written by, say, first Enoch, written by Enoch. It definitely was not. And so people always wonder about biblical books. Was this written by the person who says they wrote it? You know, was this really written by Paul? Was this really written by Matthew? Or was this pseudepigraphal literature? So don't be worried when people are questioning that. They're actually really just thinking in terms of ancient Near Eastern tradition, okay? So we're pretty sure we know because of context clues within the books themselves. Paul talks about himself and talks about his experiences. And the same thing goes for the Gospels. But books like Hebrews and Revelation, they, they give names sometimes like in Revelation but they don't tell us much about themselves, and it might be a different guy than we've assumed. In the same context, some people have a hard time thinking that Moses might not have written every word of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, because it's attributed to him. We say the law of Moses and the first five books of Moses were pretty okay with the fact that Paul probably had scribes working with him to write it down what he dictated And it might very well have been the same for Moses. And there were very likely editors that added in more information after Moses died, such as how he died and where he died. Clearly, Moses didn't write that stuff down. So we're okay with Paul having a scribe or somebody helping him write it down. We talk about how his eyes must have been bad because he talks about it in epistles. So probably somebody else was writing for him at certain points. Luke acted as a scribe for people, but we tend to not think that that could be possible for Moses and then get really shocked when that's suggested. It's a very likely possibility for Moses. So don't be worried if people question the authorship of the Pentateuch and say, oh, it wasn't Moses. Well, it was Moses, but it was probably not just Moses. Okay, so I'm going to get off of that bandwagon and talk about the New Testament now. So the New Testament was written over the course of about 100 years or so, and many books were considered authoritative as soon as they were written. And that's because within the books themselves, there was a formal tone to a lot of them. They were writing to provide an account of something. You'll find the word account many times all through the Gospels that they're trying to give an official account of what happened with Jesus and the story of Jesus' life and death. And then in the epistles, we have clues that the writers of the epistles considered their letters to be authoritative and scripture. Peter says things like, people twist what I write, just like they twist the rest of scripture. Now, if he's saying the rest of scripture, he's saying what I'm writing here is scripture too. That's out of 2 Peter 3. I'm very obviously... uh, paraphrasing here. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is saying, we thank God that you accepted our teacher not as just a man talking, but as the word of God. He's very clearly claiming divine inspiration for that. 1 Corinthians 14, 
Paul again clearly thinks he is writing inspired information that is beneficial for all. And he says that a prerequisite for someone to be spiritual or be able to share God's word as a prophet would first have to accept him and what he's writing as authoritative. So many New Testament books claim divine inspiration, that they are writing what they've heard from God, and what they write is important and necessary for Christian beliefs and living. In the Old Testament, we had different sayings like, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me. They're a little bit more vague about claiming authority for themselves, but they're saying, I have something that God said to me. In the New Testament, they're saying straight up, listen, if you don't listen to me, then you can't consider yourself spiritual at all. Now, there's a few other factors that we can count in there about how the canon is formed. Now, if a book claims to be authoritative and says this is from God, then at least the author thinks it should be included in scripture, right? But that's not all of it. According to how the Old Testament was formed, they also had to have historical accuracy so that they weren't claiming that some major event happened way outside of the realm of possibility. If they got it a year or two wrong, it was no big deal. We make mistakes. Everybody is human. So historical accuracy was important, as well as not contradicting something else that was clearly stated in scripture that was doctrine or important for Christian living. And we usually talk about this as being the theology within inerrancy or infallibility that is important to not contradict. The Jewish leaders that decided that the Old Testament was the canon of what they had already chosen, they chose all of that based on those principles. And it's the same thing for the New Testament. They chose things that were clear, historically accurate, and not contradicting anything from the Old Testament, but rather just continuing with the line of thought from the Old Testament and adding on to that new covenant that Jesus established. So there's a certain amount of internal logic that goes on with determining the New Testament canon. And this is an internal factor. That means nobody outside no church leader, no bishop, no pope, no council decided the canon on that factor. That factor is purely internal, that it makes sense, that it's coherent. It continues with the old while adding on new. So there's internal logic that also helped to develop the canon. There were certain councils. You might have heard of these councils, right? The Council of Chalcedon the Nicene Council, um, and there's a couple more councils that happened in the 300s and 400s AD that talked about canon. And these councils were mostly dealing with heresy within the church, such as the Arian heresy, which talked about a, a sect of Christianity that did not believe that Jesus was both human and divine. They said he was only divine, he was only God. They believed that the human body and matter and physical stuff was bad. And so if Jesus became human, that would taint God. And so it wasn't possible. So they said, no, uh, he was only God. He was only divine. He was not human. So they had a council of the bishops to decide, you know what? We need to decide once and for all who's right and who's wrong. Are the Arians right? Was Jesus only 
divine or was he human and divine? And to us now, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was a really big deal that caused huge division in the church. So that's what the councils were dealing with. Those were the issues at stake. But they ended up also talking about the books of the Bible and determining a canon. And what they ended up doing was simply confirming what was already happening. These councils that happened in the 300s and 400s AD simply made official what churches were already using as their canon. We also see lists in letters by early church fathers that say, hey guys, you should read these things in church, these letters by Paul, etc., etc. And they would talk about the Gospels and the Epistles. So early church fathers in the late 100s AD would mention these letters that we have in our modern Bibles by name. It was already a pretty well-defined canon of scripture by the late 100s AD. So we knew that there was general agreement. They would also mention other letters that you could use and were useful, but they would recommend not reading them in church so that they wouldn't get confused with scripture, with official canon, what was to be considered the Bible. So they were saying, look, there are useful books. You can read them. They're helpful to know history and to know what's going on in the church, but don't read them in church so that people aren't confused as to what is divinely inspired scripture and not. So since there was general agreement about what the books were that were divinely inspired by God, there was general agreement by the 100s, by the late 100s AD. What the councils did in the 300s and 400s AD was simply to confirm, yeah, we these are the books that we've been using in our church for the last 200 years. What about you guys? Yep, we have the same. So these councils simply confirmed what had already been going on for up to 200 years in some of these churches. Now, there were books that were kind of fringe that some churches did consider to be canon and other churches didn't. Um... You probably haven't even heard of some of these books. The Shepherd of Hermas, the Gospel of Barnabas, I think, and there's just a handful of others. But you can find them whenever you study Greek. Like I remember I read the Didache in Greek as a part of a class that I was doing in Greek. And this is the stuff that you, you never hear about. It's never controversial today. Like, oh, have you heard about this? Most churches didn't count those books as canon but they wanted them available as resources. Now, church history gets kind of confusing after the 300s AD because a lot of the history of the early church follows the history of the Roman Empire. Constantine granted protection or just basically don't harm the Christians in an edict called the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. And he became a Christian, though he was never baptized until he was about to die. So he kind of was a halfway there kind of guy. He still did a lot of things with the pagan gods of Rome, but he called himself a Christian and he supported the Christians. So he was halfway in and out of the door with Christianity. And we don't think that he did it in a manipulative kind of way. We think that he did it because he didn't fully understand Christianity and he just didn't feel like he needed to do a whole lot more than what he was already doing. That's one of the theories. But he gave an edict in 313 AD 
that from that point, the line between church and state was pretty much erased. There were lots of trickle-down effects of that, including the fact that emperors and Caesars sometimes started appointing bishops, and it became a political office to be a bishop. And a bishop, by the way, was just what they called pastors. It was a leader of a church. But there would be bishops over cities, and these were often a political appointee because they also had land, property, and maybe slaves. It, it, was, a, it was a big deal to be a bishop. And so people started to want this position for the power and money and land that came along with it. So after that, it just became more and more politicized. Emperors and Caesars decided how to solve heretical controversies. Remember I mentioned that Arian controversy where they were saying that Jesus was not human, he was only divine? Well, Constantine was the guy that decided which, <laughs> which way to go with that heresy. He saw the controversy going on for a while and he said, you know what, I'm just going to decide which way we should believe. So it's kind of hard to tell what happened in church history in some ways after the time of Constantine because the water gets muddied with political intrigue mixing with church issues. But by the time of Constantine, which was in the early 300s AD, there was definitely a canon of scripture for the New Testament. Churches agreed on it. There had already been a council that said, yep, we agree, but it could have been decided as early as the late 100s AD. And by that time, all of the books of the New Testament had already been written. The latest date we have for a book to be written in the New Testament was 150 AD, and that's a late, late, late date. It could have been done by 180. So to have agreement, universal or near universal agreement on the books of the New Testament within a hundred years of all of the books being written in a time where there was no email, not a good postal service, and people still using communal toilets, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a very, according to us, primitive society. That's pretty good. That's really, really good. So let's talk about what a Bible would have looked like at the time of Jesus, okay? About the time of Jesus, Jewish scribes had developed rules for making and copying the Bible easier, more uniform, and make it easier to find inaccuracies, and made rules for how to treat the Bible to honor its holiness and all these kinds of things. So at the time of Jesus, leather scrolls were still very widely used. But papyrus had also become pretty popular. It was much cheaper, much easier to make, much shorter process, didn't require nearly the amount of resources and time and professionals that a leather scroll would have needed. So papyrus is made of papyrus reeds. And these reeds grew up around the Nile Delta in Egypt. So it's a very popular writing material in Egypt, but it also spread to places like Israel around the time of Jesus and before. And what they do is that they would split these reeds and they would lay them down right next to each other horizontally. And then they would take a second set of reeds and put glue down on the first set and lay down another set of reeds vertically over top of the first set. So if you can imagine like a waffle pattern in clothing, 
where there's a set of threads going right to left and a set of threads going up and down. That's kind of what papyrus looked like, except it looked a little bit like straw, like stripped down straw. And they would glue those two layers together. And then to make pages, they would, they would make a papyrus scroll. Okay, this is the first way it was made. And so they would take one sheet of papyrus and then make another sheet and another sheet and however many sheets you want. And then they would glue those sheets together along one edge so that you would have a long roll of papyrus to write on. And it was a pretty good system. It was easier to write on papyrus. It would show up the ink better so you could read it a little bit easier than on leather. And it kind of looked like homemade paper. The problem with papyrus is that it was pretty susceptible to humidity, the sun, and <laughs> falling apart in any way possible. So we only find papyrus through archaeology in Egypt where it's super dry. So they have had some pretty substantial finds in Egypt through the 20th century, only in Egypt because of the continual dryness there. Now if parchment were used, for a scroll, and parchment is animal hides, they, there were some rules that they had to follow because according to kosher law, you had to treat animals a certain way and you had to deal with their dead bodies, their carcasses a certain way. So there were lots of rules for how to make a leather scroll or a parchment scroll. So here are some of the rules. They had to be hides or skins from clean animals as opposed to unclean. And they would sew the leaves together, and the leaves would be this different sections, using thread or the sinews from clean animals. And along with kosher laws, they made rules to make the Bible more uniform. And here I'm talking about the Old Testament because this is according to Jewish tradition. So they made these rules so that it was so uniform that it would be much easier to check for accuracy because each page was being written out by hand that if each page had, you know, 40 lines, but then the next page had 60 lines on it, then you can't compare page to page anymore to see if it's the exact same thing as another scroll. So the Jewish scribes made up a bunch of rules for how to copy the Old Testament so that it would be uniform and it would be much easier to check it. So here are some of the rules. Each written column of the scroll had to be 48 to 60 lines, and each line had to have exactly 30 letters. So you know what this means. You run, <laughs> you run out of space after 30 letters, you got to automatically go to the next line. That means there were some words that were broken in half, or there would be one letter from a word on one line and the rest of the word on the next line. It helped them to make it uniform, but it probably made it a little bit harder to read <laughs> when you're breaking apart words. The pages were lined, and then letters, instead of being written on a line like we do with English, they were suspended from the line so that your, the top of your letter was touching a line. They could only use black ink, and no word and no letter could be written from memory. So to keep scribes from accidentally making mistakes, assuming that the word assume had one S instead of two, scribes were required to look back at what they were copying for every single letter. <laughs> Can you imagine how tedious that would be? 
looking back when you have the word scroll and you're spelling it out, writing it on your scroll, and you have to write S, and then you have to look back for the C, C, and then you have to look back for the R, R, look back for the O, O, and you had to do that for every single letter to make sure that you weren't assuming you knew how to spell anything. So it made them incredibly accurate, but can you imagine how long it would take them to write out an Old Testament book? Like, imagine how long it would take to write out Isaiah. Oh, I don't know. I have no idea, but a long time. And they even had spacing rules. Between each letter, there had to be the space of a hair and a space of a letter between each word. And there were lots of other rules. But can you imagine to be a scribe, to write out the Bible, the Old Testament at least, you had to be an incredibly patient person And no wonder they dedicated their lives to doing this because (laughs) it might take your whole lifetime to just write out the whole Old Testament. So that's the Old Testament at the time of Jesus. There were all these rules in place to help scribes write the Old Testament accurately. So many of the Old Testament books were written on leather scrolls. And many of the New Testament books were written on papyrus because that was the new medium of the time. It was a... It was a very good one. It was much cheaper, and it was a good way to produce a lot of a book and to be able to circulate it around much more easily than a scroll would have been, okay? And we do have both mentioned in the New Testament. At one point, Paul asked for his scrolls, so we know that he had scrolls. And when we talk about early manuscripts of the New Testament, they're very often on papyrus, So lots of papyrus have been found in Egyptian archaeological sites that are from around the 200s AD. It was clearly a very common thing to use papyrus to write New Testament books, and it made it so that there were many more copies of them. They just didn't last very long. And there you have it. There's a glimpse of what a Bible in the time of Jesus would have looked like. It still would have been in separate parts. Each book was either a scroll of leather or a scroll of papyrus. Books were not really made yet that where you turn a leaf to look at the next page. It was all still scrolls, but made of different materials. Papyrus made it so that they could be copied much more quickly and more cheaply, and so could be distributed faster and over a wider area. So yeah, it is very reasonable to think that New Testament books were spread very quickly and very easily because of papyrus. All right, there you have it. There's the New Testament canon. (laughs) We're going to move on to other things next time. I hope you learned something that was useful, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.